Hey, welcome back to Dear Baseball Gods. This is Dan Blewett, and this is episode 14. It is a balmy night in Bloomington, Illinois, and uh, my business partner and roommate, Lucas Cook, is already down in Louisville with uh, our Warbird Senators team. So I'm here in an empty house kicking it, and, uh, you know, I had this conversation recently with, uh, well, it's actually a, a very brief uh, text conversation with a with a kid that I've followed kind of on the on the interwebs for, for a while. He seemed to follow a similar trajectory to my own career and hardworking kid went to a smaller school and uh, he's a pitcher obviously and built himself up to this I mean very impressive young man just a impressive physique and you know his his velocity went from you know low 80s to to low 90s and it's you know similar to, to what I accomplished over my college career and uh, the draft came and went a couple couple weeks ago and he he didn't get selected unfortunately and uh, I was just kind of checking in, and he and I don't have a really a significant rapport, but I'm aware of who he is, and I, I check in on him once in a while. And I kind of asked, I said, "Hey, what are your plans? Are you going to Indy Ball, or you know, what's what's the story?" And you know, I was I was disappointed in the answer, and it's actually strange because it's something that I uttered myself back when I blew up my elbow for a second time and I got Tommy John surgery a second time. I I, I didn't have any illusions to the fact that I was pretty in in pretty dire straits you know as far as scouts looking at me a certain way and you know I I hope that I could one day be the first guy who'd ever broken into affiliated ball while having two Tommy Johns prior to his affiliated experience so you know I knew I was going to be in in rare air if I if I did end up making it but anyway his response was so sorry but I got to back up but so back at that time after I had gotten my second surgery I had kind of pledged to people on my on my blog that I wasn't going to return to baseball until I could throw at least 98 miles an hour because I figured if I could throw that hard that despite you know a battered elbow uh, I, I get a chance because when guys throw that hard they're just at such a premium that it's hard to ignore even if you have a you know a long medical history as I had and uh, so oddly enough this kid offered the uh, the same explanation that he didn't want to go play indie ball um, that he just wanted to, to train and see if he could throw 90 miles an hour and you know there's the the disappointment is number one I feel like in this sort of life that is you know maybe analogous to a boxing ring that's kind of like hanging out in the corner and not going out there to throw a punch until you know that know for a fact that the punch that you have to throw is going to knock the guy out you know there's something to be said for going out there with some uncertainty and 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 fighting you know, and fighting for your life and, you know, to, to not go back on the field until you know that you have enough to go out there is, I don't know, it's, it's it's not what I chose for myself, obviously. And even when I made that pledge to myself years ago, I, uh, I messaged one of my, my advisors, one of my mentors, and I said, hey, you know, I hit 94 on the gun. I'm at nine months post-op or 10 months post-op. It was really early in my recovery. I'm like, you know, do I need to do I need to wait till I get into the upper 90s, or is that good enough? Like, there's probably more in the tank, so if I'm hitting 94 now, you know, maybe I'll have enough. He said 94 is good enough, even if you're 27, even if you've had two surgeries. You know, this guy this is a guy who'd been around a long time, been an agent, uh, been a scout. He said, you know, that's enough. Like, go out and pitch, prove that you can get high-level hitters out, and, uh, you know, make things happen. So I did. So I abandoned that, and I uh, I went after it, and I ultimately didn't succeed. I, I succeeded in 
doing various other things and became a successful, you know, low level minor league, you know, ball player. But um, ultimately, I didn't make it to the major leagues. And, you know, so here we are. But at the same time, like, I stepped out from the corner of the ring and I, I threw my punches and I went down swinging. So, but the point of all this and this sort of little opening monologue is that as I look back on my career, I would have never, I'm glad I, A, I'm glad I chose what I chose, but B, it just misses the point. Like the point of all this, you know, there was a, a, for, a former major league in our, our facility today, um, working with another, another young, young pro. And he, uh, he's just, you know, he's an older guy. I don't know him. They were uh, kind of on tour as this, uh, this minor leaguer was coming through our town and he was hooking up with this, uh, former Chicago White Sox guy and to do, to do a lesson and, you know, you see all these old players, like you turn in your uniform at some point and, and once you do, you're just kind of reintroduced into society and, and people don't care, you know, what you used to be like, it's cool. And it's a label that you'll always have. And it's, it's a badge that you earned, but at the same time, like life slows down, life goes back to normal. And really the thing that you carry with you is your stories and your memories and the good times you have. And I know that if I had just stayed in my gym training, you know, to and waiting to hopefully throw 90 miles an hour, I would have missed out on so much that, you know, that, that had made this whole journey worth it. You know, it wasn't that I had to go pitch a day in the major leagues. And obviously that was my, always my goal. Um, but along the way, what ended up becoming my trophy was just all the memories and the stories that I made. And I'm glad that I didn't take myself up on my own pledge to just kind of sit on the sidelines and stay in the gym rather than going out there and competing. So, and really the lead in today is to really what probably is my best story, um, which is the Lake County fielders debacle. And this is an untold story. I mean, still to, to this day, you know, I played for the Lake County fielders in 2011 and, uh, our, our collapse earned some national attention. And, um, it was a really bizarre story and, it was one of the things that I'm most proud to have been a part of. Almost like you're on the Titanic and you swam away from it. Obviously, nothing quite of that magnitude. But um, but my time with the Lake County Fielders in 2011 was just crazy. And uh, if I had stayed on the sidelines, if I had just laid in wait, um, you know, it just never would have happened. So I'm glad that I went out there and I, I, I tried my best. And at the end of the day, I I soaked in some of the moments, and, and this was one of them. So... We'll start back in 2010. So after I played my first season, my, my, my year with the Corn Belters in the Frontier League, and I'll kind of line things up now. So in independent baseball, which is not affiliated with a major league organization. So, you know, if you're the Chicago Cubs, you have your, your farm system, the, the triple, AAA Iowa Cubs. Um, then there's the AA Tennessee Smokies. You know, then there's the, uh, the high A somebodies. I, I don't know the whole Cubs organization, but, you know, you go all the way down to rookie ball and, and that's, uh, you know, you climb the ladder and hopefully you get to the top and become a, a full-on Chicago Cub. So in independent ball, it's a it's a parallel sort of running track, um, you know, probably down a notch because, you know, Major League Scouts, they, they do tend to pick out the best talent, but they overlook a lot of guys. And there's guys like myself who, you know, had injuries and maybe missed out on their chance of getting drafted that way. But you know, so the independent ball circuit kind of runs parallel to the minor leagues where there's lots of comparable levels. Um, and it's, uh, but it's just a different animal. So independent ball still has its own rungs. So there's, 
there's always like a sort of basement. There's a lot of like upstart leagues, like the uh, um, the Pecos League. There's a new one called I think the Thoroughbred League. It seems like there's a new league every year that kind of they come and they go um, because financing is difficult. And these leagues, you know, they start with ambitious goals and they end up just financially not making it. But and there's teams every year that financially don't make it. And obviously, the team that I'm going to talk about was one of those teams. But so at, really, at the bottom of like really well-run, organized leagues that have been around for a long time that continue to draw good fans and, and pay players consistently. I mean, they don't none of them pay real good salaries, but they at least pay their players. Um, the Frontier League is, like, the bottom, but it's it's good. You know, so it's a rookie-level league, but it's uh, it's well-organized. It's very clean and good baseball, and um, they get fans, and they pay their players, and it's uh, it's the real thing. So above the, uh, above the Frontier League is... Really, I would say the Can-Am League. So the Can-Am League is a smaller league. It's like six teams now, I think. It's centered around the Northeast. Um, and then above that, there's the American Association, which is a really good, expansive league. I think they have like 16 teams now. Um, I played there in 2011. Um, I played for the Fargo-Moorhead Red Hawks, which are a perennial winner, a very well-run organization. Um, they go from Winnipeg, Canada, all the way down to I think Amarillo, Texas, is the the south, the southernmost team in that league. But again, it's uh, so that's like a little higher level. So most guys who play in the Frontier League either have collegiate experience, so it's their first taste of professional baseball, or they have like one or two years in like rookie ball or or low A, something like that. In the American Association and the uh, the Can Am League players have more like high a they have a couple years of affiliate experience they have like high a to double a experience um and then above the american association is the atlantic league and that was the league i spent my last three years in and the vast majority of the players in that league have triple a time um there's actually fewer players uh with even double a time in that league there's not many players at all who only made the single a and there's very few players like myself who uh, only played independent ball so um, the Atlantic League is like the gold standard where if there's on any given night, you know, batting one through nine, there's at least four or five guys who played in the major leagues and then the other four or five played in like double A AA or triple A. So it's a really competitive league and some big names like Rich Hill and Dontrell Willis, Scott Casimir all went through that league and, you know, some of them made it back into the major leagues like Casimir and, uh, and Rich Hill and, you know, others had their last hurrah or whatever, uh, my own manager. In 2015, Chris Widger, he uh, went a, he was in the majors for a long time, got released, and then was in the Atlantic League for a year, and then caught back on, and then made the the team out of spring training. He made the Chicago White Sox and ended up winning a World Series with them. So a lot of pretty cool stories, and again, a really high-level play there. So it kind of goes from, again, from the bottom to the top, just like the regular minor leagues, but obviously it's different. So um, after my first year in the Frontier League, I got traded. Now I was 24, so I had I'd gotten Tommy John um, after my fourth year, my redshirt junior year in college, and uh, so I sat out. I took a I took a fifth year. I took a second major, so that meant I graduated with, with a double major in philosophy and psychology. But um, I sat through my fifth year in college, and then that summer, I wasn't able to to play then either because my surgery date was in August. So I was coming up around 12 months obviously in August, but you know, the, the pro season's almost over by that point. So for you to be ready and like in action and ready to just jump in a working bullpen or starting rotation at 12 months is pretty hard. And the guys you've seen that have done that on TV are pretty special and, and really the exceptions to the rules or the exception to the rule. But 
Um, so I, I tried to make my comeback that summer after my fifth year, and I, I, I failed. So I had to wait in a whole other winter. And uh, so that's why I was kind of an old. I was 24 when I made my, my professional debut in the Frontier League. But uh, And so with that, I, like, I knew I had a ticking, a ticking clock. So it was my goal to spend as little time in the Frontier League as I needed to and try to hopefully start moving up because scouts still want to see you as age-appropriate. So if you're 27 years old, they don't want to sign you thinking that you can only pitch in A ball. Like 27-year-olds are in double A AA and triple A, and they're pretty close to, the, to being bigly ready. So if you want to prove to a scout that, hey, you should sign me and put me in your own triple A farm system, you need to be like pitching in the Atlantic League and, and doing really well. So I was sensitive to the fact that I needed to move up quick. So after my first year in the Frontier League, I made it known to my managers that, hey, if you know, I'm open to being traded somewhere to a higher league like the American Association or the Can-Am League um, because, you know, I'm, I got to kind of go for broke. And I did well in the Frontier League my first year. I pitched 100-something innings and have just under a 4 ERA. So solid season, not spectacular, but but solid. And uh, And so I was ready to move up. And as it turned out, I was in normal. I was in the the early uh, early goings of Warbird Academy, and I got my my phone rang, and it was my manager Alan Neer, and he said uh, he said, "Hey Dan, you know we uh, I got some news. Um, you know we traded you to uh, this new team. It's going to be in this league called the North American League, and uh, they're actually part owned by Kevin Costner, which I'm not sure if that ended up actually being true, um, but they're an upstart, and they were in this." being this big sort of conglomeration of leagues called the North American League. So the North American League was taking uh, the folded uh, North Amer- or Northern League, which had been around for a long time but just slowly uh, financially collapsed. They were taking a couple teams from the Northern League. They, were gonna, they had gotten confirmations that a couple of Frontier League teams were going to peel off into it. A couple teams from the Golden League, which is centered around uh, California and like, like Victoria, Canada, like kind of just the whole West Coast. And then some teams from the United League, which is another small kind of failing um, independent league down in Texas. So there's basically going to be like three or four divisions, like a Chicagoland division, a uh, like a West Coast division. And there were also a couple of uh, Canadian teams. So the Edmonton uh, Capitals were in that league. And then the uh, Calgary, the Calgary Flames, I can't remember, the Calgary somethings. Um, and then there was the United League uh, also. We'll just call them the United League somethings. But... You know, there was like a Texas division, a West Coast division, and a Chicagoland division. So you'd play within your division for the most part. There wouldn't be a whole lot of travel between divisions because obviously just really expansive league. Um, so at least that was the plan. So I thought, hey, this is cool. Like I'll get to play in a lot of different places. One of the things I really loved was seeing new ballparks and traveling. And, you know, I didn't want to stay close to home. I wanted to go, like, see the world. And I've always thought that, hey, baseball diamonds are like – the most beautiful thing, especially when they're, you know, well manicured grass. And so that was like a big perk of playing professionally for me because, you know, in my alma mater, uh, the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, you know, they do as best a job as they can with the minimal funding that they get. So, you know, we had a nice feel, but it was nothing to write home about. We didn't get a lot of fans and didn't have a big stadium. So I really wanted to play in front of those, those beautiful, um, well manicured emerald green um, ballparks. So, it was exciting, and you know I was ready for the opportunity. My uh, the girl I was dating at the time was not, um, so we had a big, uh, not really a fight about it, but um, a, a messy couple of nights. Um, and then obviously I got traded up there, and I was going. So as the winter wore on, um, the uh, 
the league started to destabilize. So a couple of the teams that said they were going, especially in the Chicagoland area, pulled out. And a couple of the Texas teams pulled out. And a couple of the West Coast teams pulled out. So as it turned out, we end up being the only Chicagoland team. And that meant that we were the only team within like 20 hours or something by bus. So if that sounds kind of untenable that's because it was so they were building a ballpark they'd like secured funding or so we thought um, up in Gurney Illinois that's where Lake County is it's like a it's right near the uh, Wisconsin border so Kenosha was like right a couple couple minutes away and uh, so Gurney is a nice area it's home to like a huge mall I think Um, honestly it was like really nice there's a lot of like uh, protected areas it seemed like I drive through what seemed like wetlands uh, for like 30 minutes on my commute to the ballpark but um, really nice area, but they were trying to get a ballpark built and slowly, slowly getting there. So for opening day, they weren't going to have the ballpark ready as pledged. And uh, so they put up this, they had like this temporary field ready and they were going to put temporary bleachers until the real ballpark was up. But to get around all that, they sort of just like expelled us and they're like, hey, you guys are going to start on the road for the first seven weeks. And I thought, oh, that's cool. Like, more travel for me. That's great. But I mean, I was still young and naive. I didn't realize how hard it is playing on the road. I mean, even a seven-day road trip becomes just difficult. Like, you just don't sleep as well. You're on the bus all the time. Um, you're getting used to the new bed. You know, the road schedule just kind of sucks where you're you're kind of stuck in the hotel most of the day, just kind of lounging around and, you know, kind of just like vegging out in front of the TV. And, you know, food choices are, are minimized. It's whatever you can walk to pretty much. Um, so you often don't end up eating very well, eating a lot of fast food and, Meal money doesn't stretch as far, so you don't have access to a kitchen. There's just lots of things about being on the road that kind of wear you down. And uh, But I thought, oh, man, seven weeks is like a really long vacation. This will be awesome. So I I drive up there to Lake County, and I have a host family that I have to meet. Um, that's where I'm going to be staying. And so I kind of get underway. And then, uh, you know, through all this, I'm just thinking, man, this is going to be just like an adventure. And it was way more than I, when I, I realized, but so I get up there and I mean the first, from the first day it was an adventure because I pull up to like this pretty much like a mansion, um, in the, the Illinois suburbs and I walk in and the place was filthy. Uh, I was greeted by this, this really nice woman and her like savant seven year old who, I don't know, he was like between like five and eight. I couldn't say, um, we'll, we'll go with seven now, but he, she explained to me that he was, like, gifted and super smart, which he was. He was a really nice kid. Um, but they were living in squalor. I mean, this house was, A, enormous for just the two of them. And I guess she was, like, a legitimate hoarder because as I walked through the house, and I'm not, like, the cleanest guy, but I'm, I'm also definitely not a slob. And I definitely don't like walking through trash or, I mean, I, I went in the kitchen. She's like, yeah, you can, you know, make anything you want, like, eat anything you want. Like, the, you know, this place is your place. And I'm like... As I as I looked at this huge countertop, like this just huge kitchen, this sprawling kitchen, like it was as if anything they'd ever eaten there, after they took it out of the packaging and were done with it, it just stayed wherever they they took it out. I mean, there was a there was a pan of um, mop, there was like a mop, a mop and bucket on the floor with dirty like floor water. Um, you know, there was fetid water in the in in the in the sink. Uh, there was just like kitty litters thrown everywhere. I mean, the whole house was just a mess. It was disgusting. And I felt so sorry for this little kid who was living there. Um, 
and I was only there for maybe five days because they told us that, hey, you know, we were going to have uh, spring training up in, in Gurnee, but as it turned out, like, the field wasn't ready. Like, the grass had to, like, take because they just resodded the thing, and um, they were shipping us down to Yuma, Arizona, where Jose Canseco's Yuma Scorpions team was having spring training. So they were having the spring training down at the old uh, AAA ballpark in Yuma, and uh, so we are going to be joining them down there. We'd scrimmage the Yuma team, you know, pretty much every day and, and get to use the uh, this complex that I guess used to be the spring training home of, of somebody. So that was a, a was a nice reprieve because I slept on this, like, air mattress up in a bedroom. I mean, this place had, like, six or seven bedrooms, but none of them had any furniture in them. And there was just, like, a, like a prison mattress thrown in mine with, like, sheets that didn't really, you know, uh, just, like, stick to it and... I just, it was just the, the strangest experience because again, I'm not like the cleanest guy in the world. Like I've, I've slummed that I've lived in a clubhouse. I've lived in a dorm, um, you know, in, in 2014 playing for Camden. Um, I've lived being the fourth or fifth guy in a one bedroom apartment where we have no furniture. Like I've, I've, I've done all those things, but this was just fundamentally different. Just the way this whole house was run and just how ramshackle everything was and just how filthy it was. And I, I couldn't bring it up to her. I just didn't have the, the gumption. But I just knew that if we did come back, there was no way I was going to stay there, that I had to bring it up to the front office and, and find a new host family. So we get shipped down to Arizona, and uh, we arrive, and, and I get roomed up with one of, the guy who came, one of the guys who came over in the trade with me. His name was Andrew, and he was a left-handed pitcher who had joined uh, my previous team, the Corn Belters, right before the season ended. He got, like, the last maybe, like, 30 games of the year or something like that. So... He was a good lefty. He was from New York, and uh, we knew each other, and he was a, a decent enough guy, had a kind of dry sense of humor, and we kind of got along. So we are roommates in this little kind of like motel um, in Yuma, and uh, right adjacent to it, there was like a Bank of America. There was a little, little shopping center with a grocery store, so it worked, it worked out pretty well where, you know, I could walk over to the grocery store. I'd get a, a rotisserie chicken every day and, and buy some bananas and peanut butter and jelly and some bread and some some miscellaneous fruit and I like ate pretty healthy and ate you know pretty well on the you know $18 a day or whatever it was um the per diem so spring training like all was well you know we we walked to the field every day because we didn't have much to do and we got to kind of there was a little crappy pool in the middle of our motel so we got some sun and uh I mean we had like morning workouts and you know did our thing and so I I'd been traded up to to Lake County um in part because the pitching coach of the Corn Belters, Brooks Carey, who's now the Corn the, the Corn Belters um, field manager, he's the the manager there. He and I were close, and he would go to Arizona every winter and to this kind of like I don't know this this league where you kind of pay to play and get some exposure, and then they sign some guys in independent ball. So Brooks would go down there, and he met this guy Tim Johnson, who used to be uh, the Blue Jays manager in the majors, I think in like the '80s. So him and TJ, you know, these two old salty veterans would just be down there drinking beer and talking baseball and um, telling stories. And I guess, uh, you know, Tim signed on to be the manager of the Lake County Fielders. And he had managed the Yuma team, actually, when he was a, a manager in AAA prior. And uh, he'd, he'd been around baseball for a long time. He was a well-respected baseball guy. And uh, as Tim was trying to, like, assemble his starting rotation... I guess I had just come up in conversation like here and there and as kind of like a guy who was a little more aggressive and professional and carried myself a certain way and, and pitched a certain way. And as it turned out, like Tim was like, yeah, I want him. 
Um, let's make a trade. Like you guys need an outfielder. Like I need a pitcher. Like let's trade for Blewett. So that's kind of how it went down. And so it was me and this kid, Andrew for two outfielders and someone else. Um, and, and that was kind of how it went down. But I, uh, so it was the first time where I was in a position where I was pretty much guaranteed to make the team out of spring training. Um, I'd hated trials my whole life and obviously they're just, they're terrible. They, they keep you on the edge. You always play tense. Like you never do your best in tryouts. It's tryouts are a nightmare. So I, my heart always goes out to, to kids when they're trying out for my teams or for their high school teams. It's just, or their junior high teams even. It's just, it's always tough. I, I hated tryouts as a kid. So I get traded up there. When you're traded like that, like they're going to give you your chances. So I knew I wasn't going to cut, going to get cut. Obviously I still like worked the same amount in spring training and, and did things the right way because you never know, like you never want to be comfortable. But, um, you know, as it wore on, I, uh, I was told that I was going to be the number four starter and we had, you know, three older guys, two of which who had pitched in double a and, um, one who was a accomplished pitcher reached, I think high a with the Phillies a guy named Zach. And, um, so like three older guys, you know, in front of me that I respected that, you know, I was happy to be the number four and, the number five was a little bit unsettled and there were a couple guys in the running, one of whom was my roommate, Andrew. So as spring training kind of progressed and we got down to like the final couple of days, you know, I made my last start and I threw well through my three or four innings or whatever. And then it was finally Andrew's turn, Andrew's turn. And, um, you know, he just needed to do his thing, I guess. And he was probably gonna be the, the number five starter. So I remember walking to the ballpark with him and it was, you know, his last turn, and I was like, all right, just, like, just do your thing and, you know, pitch well enough, and we'll be ready to start the season, and we'll all kind of be intact. Because as we did the math, like, maybe, like, three guys had to get sent home. We had a couple too many. Like, they can't take the exact amount they need, even though, obviously, they didn't want to fly tons of extra players down to Arizona. So, um, you know, a couple guys had to get cut and go home, and I just didn't want him to be one of them. So, as it turned out, his last start was just terrible. I think he, like, walked three, gave either, like, a bases-clearing double or maybe even a grand slam. I think he gave at least one home run. I don't think he made it out of the second inning. Um, but he just got shellacked, just got shelled. And uh, I was like, oh, man, well, maybe this isn't going to work out. So as we're walking home after the game, he was just surprisingly chipper, and it was as if it never happened. And I know that if it was me um, – yeah, I would have been stressed that, you know, I just lost my chance to be on the team. I might be going home, but B, I just never take not pitching well that well. Um, so I was like, man, this is, this is great. I guess he's not letting it affect him. Like he's very being super upbeat and, you know, letting it just roll off him. Um, and then we got back to the hotel and it was the same and we went to bed like we had been. And, um, I woke up in the morning and he was gone. And I didn't think anything of it. I just looked over and I'm like, oh, I guess he, he's out. Maybe he's like trying to find coffee or out getting a bagel. Like, I don't know what are eating scorpions, whatever people do in Arizona in the morning. But he was he was gone. So, um, you know, it was like 10, probably like 10 a.m. when I woke up. And I, I figured he'd probably come home around lunchtime. And then lunchtime passed, didn't show up. I walked over to the grocery store, got my lunch and took care of all that and came back. And he still wasn't around. So I was starting to get suspicious. And then as I... Obviously, I like I probably should have figured this out earlier, but like none of his stuff was around. I was like, man, uh, that's kind of strange. Like, I wonder where his his bags and all this are. So I like walk in, I walk around. I'm looking for teammates, and I try to find somebody, and I finally find our uh, 
our shortstop, a guy named Rex Rungren, whose dad was, uh, what was his name? Something Rungren, but he was the guy who sang the song, I Want to Bang on the Drum All Day. Um, that was his son. He was a super good shortstop, had like the best hands I'd ever seen. Um, so I saw Rex and, uh, I was like, Hey Rex, like, have you seen Andrew? He's like, yeah, I saw him last night. I was actually, uh, I was in the lobby at three 30 in the morning. I mean, doing God knows what, I don't know what he's doing, but he's like, yeah, I saw him like three 30. He was in here with his pack, uh, his bags packed and he was catching a bus. I'm like what? And he goes, yeah. I'm like, where was he going? He's like, I don't know, but that's what he was doing. I'm like, okay. So I texted him I'm like, Hey man, where are you? He goes, well, I'm in Milwaukee. What? Like, what are you doing in Milwaukee? It's like, ah, man, I just, I don't want to be there anymore. Like, what do you mean you didn't want to be there anymore? It's like, just just felt like it was time. I just just didn't really want to be there. Like, he just refused to give me an answer. And that was that. So I don't know if, obviously, I assume that he'd been mulling that decision over for a while. But I didn't, I wasn't aware of it. He didn't bounce any off of me. And uh, I don't know that he knew any other guys very well on the team that he was bouncing off anyone he was probably just keeping it inside and um I think someone later told me that he had been having issues with his girlfriend and um that he just had been feeling the pull back to back to New York I don't know but um after that that shellacking he just uh he split town and that was that so um a couple days later the team broke and uh, the last couple guys were sent home and we were uh we were on our way so our schedule started in 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 Maui Hawaii so from Yuma, we caught an overnight bus over to to Los Angeles airport, and then we jumped on LAX. Our, our flight was to Maui. That's like five hours over the ocean and a couple time zones. And so with obviously these really long trips, they started extending the, the series out, which is not ideal because fans don't want to come out and watch the same teams play each other seven straight days in a row. But nonetheless, that was what we, we started to do. So... We flew over to the island of Maui, and we were there for eight days. The first day was an off day. This The next seven we played, and, uh, I mean, it was awesome. So, obviously, like, free trip to Hawaii. Like, who wouldn't like that? Um, and we naturally stayed on, like, the poor side of the island. So we stayed in this place called Kahalui. And so we kind of got a feel of, like, you know, what it was actually like to live in Hawaii rather than if you were over on the uh, the rich side, like where the Sheraton was or where Lahaina was. That's where, like, the deep water surfing is. Um, it's all just like touristy and like super expensive homes, like, you know, vacation homes. So if you, you stay over there, you don't get a feel of what Hawaii is. You just think Hawaii is just, you know, beautiful blonde wives and, and, and waspy, you know, uh, rich husbands, I guess. But, um, so we were on the poor side. So every night we went into a bar, there'd be like a brawl and we'd have to like get scuttled out the back because we heard that Hawaiian natives hated Americans and that they would like beat up Navy soldiers every chance they got. So we were, didn't feel super welcome or super safe there walking around at night. But nonetheless, we just kind of got this really, like, interesting tour. And uh, a bunch of us rented a car, and so we decided we could drive around and, and really, like, make good on our, our free trip to Hawaii. So we did that every day. We drove to, like, a different beach and spent the first half of the day there. And um, I ate fish and chips at every place I could find. And I also uh, discovered this food that I actually had last night for dinner uh, called poke, which is... It's just like diced, um, you know, like half-inch chunks of, of raw ahi tuna. Um, and they just sort of toss it in like soy sauce and sesame oil and all these different flavors of just like a marinade pretty much with like some chives or some seaweed seaweed salad in there. Um, so if you go in the grocery store on Maui, they have like 10 different flavors of poke and it's just amazing. So if you like sushi, I highly recommend you look it up. And 
and make some. But so we like we we made good on our trip to Hawaii, and I got to really see the sights. I saw um, some of the most beautiful beaches, some of the biggest waves I've ever seen, which were terrifying. And uh, I got to see like the way poor people lived on the island, um, both poor natives and poor white people. So you know these these idealistic kids who. Um, thought, oh, I'm going to live in Hawaii, I'm, I'm going to be a beach bum. They go over there, and things are just so expensive on that island that they're just, like, destitute. So we saw so many, I mean, like, pretty and handsome kids just, like, sleeping on the beach. And we're, like, just, like, beaten down by the sun and covered in sand and just, like, man, this this wasn't this wasn't the right life choice for you. But, uh, in, like, a little town in pa- called Paia, um, that was kind of, like, the, the surfer beatnik town and just really beautiful with, like, tons of homeless um, just like malnourished kids who, you know, like I said, kind of probably showed up there with like this idealistic idea that they'd live this cool beach life, but didn't turn out super well. So, um, you know, while we were there, obviously we played well, somehow our team really rallied despite all the travel and the, 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 the destabilized environment that we're in, you know, obviously living in a hotel is tough and meal money was tough. So we weren't getting paid meal money from, I guess like the first week in spring training, you know, we were owed like $108 or something. We get 60, you know, we were owed $200 for, you know, a week and a half's worth of meal money. We get, you know, 120. So they kept shorting us and we're like, okay, well, I guess they'll catch us up at some point and it just didn't happen. So on Hawaii, that's a, it's a big problem because, you know, in most places like in Arizona, if you wanted to eat cheap, you could just go buy a jar of peanut butter or a jar of jelly, you know, and a jar of, or not a jar of bread, but um, a loaf of bread and all told that costs you like five dollars and you can make peanut butter peanut butter and jelly sandwiches you know for a week and you know fill yourself up obviously you get sick of them and want to die after your 15th peanut butter and jelly sandwich but um, it gets the job done but even on Maui like a gallon of milk was eight dollars I think a jar of peanut butter and or a jar of jelly was six dollars and then a loaf of bread was like five bucks so I mean that wipes out a whole day's worth of meal money right there so it just was difficult because we weren't getting, we're usually getting 50% of our meal money, which meant about nine bucks a day, which wouldn't even get you one square meal on that island. So, and oddly enough, the place that, you know, I just like walked in and out of all the places I could find to try to find food. I was like this, it's like hungry dog, I guess, but Whole Foods of all places had pulled pork for nine ninety nine a pound, which is a pretty decent deal. So every day I get a pound of pulled pork for 10 bucks. And then I'd buy like a big crusty like old world loaf of bread and I would saw chunks off it with a plastic fork and I would just make like pulled pork old crusty bread sandwiches. And uh, it was about as filling as I could hope for because a pound of pulled pork is a lot. And this probably is, you know, explains my complete aversion of pulled pork now. Um, but either way, it was, uh, it was what I, I did to make do. So we played on Maui for, like I said, seven games and it was just astonishing that every day was 77 degrees like it never wavered it was always 77 degrees with like 15 mile per hour winds and it was always partly cloudy it was just like kind of bizarre that it was that consistent but then again I never spent much time on an island so so that seven days that little eight day trip was was great you know we're playing baseball in Hawaii it's beautiful we're getting to see all these cool places awesome however when the trip was over uh, reality kind of set back in. So I pitched, I guess it was, I don't know when it was, I guess it was the, well, obviously it was the fourth game of that seven-day series. So what ended up, ha- 
what ended up happening was I got the first day of the next series, which the next couple series is all ended up being four games, which meant I got the travel day every one of the next three trips. So when we left Maui, we had a red-eye flight, which if you don't know what a red-eye flight is, it just means that your eyes are red and tired and sleepy and feel horrible because your flight was overnight. So we flew from Maui from like 10 p.m. or something overnight getting into LAX at like 6 or 7 or 8 a.m., something like that, because I think it was five hours or six hours one direction and then like seven hours back because of tailwinds maybe and then three hours of time zone difference. So at this point in my life, I was not capable of sleeping in an upright position. Once I started meditating a year later, I became capable of sleeping pretty much anywhere. I was almost like borderline narcoleptic, but I uh, I couldn't sleep in a bus. I couldn't sleep in a chair. I couldn't sleep on a busy air, airport floor, um, and I couldn't certainly couldn't sleep in a, in a plane. So when we traveled, leaving Maui, I got zero sleep that night, um, and then we show up you know, in LAX, and then we bust to Yuma, Arizona, which was our next road trip. So, you know, overnight flight from, from Hawaii into LA, then it was like, I think a three hour bus ride from LA to, to Yuma. And then, uh, you know, we played that night. So I pitched that first game and, um, you know, it was a nightmare. Actually, I think we flew into Phoenix. Uh, all these details are tough. I have them all written down. I've been editing my book, Dear Baseball Gods, and the story is all, all on paper there, but there's just so many details. Um, I actually had to call a couple of teammates uh, from this whole debacle to, to make sure we kind of corroborated. But um, So we flew into Phoenix and then drove uh, four hours to Yuma. So I had that first start, and I just remember getting off the bus in, in Phoenix or getting on the bus in Phoenix around 10 a.m., and then we had a four-hour bus ride to Yuma, and I couldn't sleep on that ride either i mean the sun was just blaring just glaring in our in our eyes and then we so we got to our hotel in yuma around 2 p.m and we had a 7 p.m game so i slept for about three hours in the hotel woke up at five we had a show and go which if you don't know what a show and go is a show and go is just when you show up and go play so you don't take like pre-game bp you don't do all the full long you know four or five hour uh pre-game you just show up and you go play. So we had to leave the hotel around five, got to the field around five thirty for I think it was a six thirty game or something like that. And I was a starting pitcher, and uh, so I took like a caffeine pill. I pounded a Monster Energy drink or two, and I had a lot of caffeine going because I was really really tired. And I just hoped that I could like muster the energy to pitch well. And uh, as it turned out, I did. I threw I think seven innings of one run ball, and we won. Uh, that was my first victory of the year. I think I got a no decision on my first one in, uh, on Maui. So um, all was well, right? But then f- three days later, I was going to make my next uh, travel day, and I was going to have the travel game again. I think our next destination was, where was it? I think it was uh, Edmonton. So we fly from, from Yuma to Edmonton, and then uh, first game there, and I just got I just got pistol whipped by that team because Edmonton was like top to bottom, like a triple A team. Um, and I just remember, I think the three hitter that game was a guy named Todd Linden, who was a former first round draft pick and played like four or five years in the majors, I think. And, um, I fell behind like two and one and I threw a fastball that was probably outer third or out in reality, probably outer half. And I had been laughing as I jogged pregame the day before uh, or, or just the day early that morning. But um, in Edmonton, 
that ballpark, it's like 420 to dead center, and there's like a 30-foot wall. It's like a, just a huge wall in, in center. I remember running poles, and I'm like, I chuckled to a team, and I'm like, are center field home runs illegal in Canada? Like, ha, 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 ha. So I throw this outer third fastball, and he just destroys it. Uh, about half, he didn't hit it over that center field wall. He hit it just to the left, about halfway up it. So it cleared at about 410, 415 about 20 feet off the ground. So I was like, ooh. And I just remember that was when I was like, all right, Dan, you're you're not in Kansas anymore because I threw that fastball and he smashed it. And I turned I turned around to watch it. And I was like, I wonder if that's going to go out. And then, I, then my brain like caught hold and it was like, dude, that ball's so far out of here. Why are you even looking at it? I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that ball's really far. Um, and it had been like 440 feet. And uh, I was like, yeah. And I got hit pretty hard that day, did not pitch well. And uh, so the cycle continued. So we go to the next place, um, which was Calgary, which was actually the only bus ride of the year. So after the four games in in Edmonton, we went to Calgary, pitched the first game there. And I I walked all over Edmonton, loved kind of visiting and and seeing my first, uh, well, my second, my first town in Canada. I'd visit Winnipeg later that summer, but um, it was really beautiful city and, and clean and I really enjoyed it so our next trip was in Calgary and I really wanted to see do the same and go see Calgary but I was just just too darn tired so I tried to sleep in a hotel but the the problem the thing that started to catch up was this is kind of vicious cycle of caffeine you know no sleep on travel days tons of caffeine and then the jitters from pitching and the adrenaline and then I go home and I get almost no sleep in the hotel so after the travel day when I'm hopped up on caffeine, I'm going home, I, I'd fall asleep at like 3 or 4 in the morning, and then I'd be up awake at 7, 8 a.m. Um, every morning. So then the next day, I need more caffeine to like get through the game, get through pregame, get my running in, do my routine. And the cycle just continued to where about just a, a week and a half in, I was sleeping 3 to 4 hours a night max, waking up at 7 or 8 in the morning every day. And I just couldn't, I just couldn't break it. So... By the time I was in Calgary, really only about two and a half weeks into the season, um, I was just an exhausted mess. And so, and and this was kind of where like the the grand finale of of crappy travel days came, where we had to go back um, to Maui from Calgary with no travel day. So travel day on really long trips is usually there is a buffer. So you get your 6 a.m. flight. You travel all day, you get there, you don't have a game that day, so you get there, you know, whenever, and you can just sleep that night, wake up, and then start fresh, and then have your game the next night. But they gave us no travel day from Calgary, Canada, with a 7 p.m. game, and then we had to play a 7 p.m. game in Maui, Hawaii the next day. So if that seems like an incra- a crazy amount of distance, it's because it is. Um, and the only reason it's even feasible to make it there is because there's like a five-hour time zone difference between Calgary and uh, and Hawaii. So... Our game gets over at like 10, and then guys, you know, you go back into the clubhouse. Usually they give you an hour after the game to shower, to eat, to collect yourself, to get your street clothes on. So anytime the game ends at 9.30 or 10, your, you know, the manager comes in and says, hey, bus to the hotel, 10.30, or bus to the hotel, 11 o'clock, whatever it is. It's typically an hour. So we're getting back to the hotel at 11, and then the bus to the airport for our 6 a.m. flight um, was at like 2 p.m., so we'd like a two hour ride to get to the airport by four, something like that. So I wasn't going to sleep for two hours. Um, so I didn't. So we get on the bus, 
going to the airport in Calgary. And, uh, and so this was where it got really hairy because a bunch of different guys were on a bunch of different flights. Like they were trying to save as much money as they could. So they put us on different flights. No one had like, there's no, there's no like nonstop flights from Calgary, Canada, to Hawaii. That's not a very sought after route. I mean, I guess it, it could be because it's super cold up there, but, um, we didn't get on the nonstop flight from Calgary to, to Maui. Suffice it to say, so some guys had two connections. I was one of the lucky ones with two. Some guys had three connections. Some guys had four connections to get from Calgary to Hawaii. So that meant we were in basically like four or five different clusters. So when the game time rolled around, I think the first group made it about two hours for the game. The second group, which I was in the second group, make it in, made it in about an hour before the game, but they had to push the game back about an hour to have any chance of accommodating all of us. So between groups one and group two, and I was in group two, we had enough players to start the game at 8 p.m. They pushed it back about an hour. Um, and then the group three, and there might have been a group four, I can't remember, but group three, which included a couple of our starters, our managers, um, our trainer, they all got in there at like they started filtering into the game between like the second inning and the fourth inning. So a pitcher took up the lineup card. We made the lineup card ourselves, you know, based on obviously like you guys pretty know, pretty much know like who would start, you know, if you had to make the Cardinals lineup or the, the Yankees lineup, if you watch a Yankees game, you could pretty much scratch it down. Um, so we made the lineup that we figured our manager would make. And obviously we knew who starting pitcher was supposed to be. So the pitcher took the lineup card out and, we started the game without our manager or our, our hitting coach and without a lot of our starters. And these guys just started f- flowing in around the second, third, fourth inning as their flights got in. Um, but it was just a, an incredibly long day just being in the air, then being in the airport for an hour or two, waiting for a connection, then another flight, then another connection. Um, so it was just a mess. And then, of course, so I didn't have that. I didn't have to pitch that first day in Maui, which was great. But I had to pitch the next game, which was a day night or a daytime doubleheader. We had an 11 a.m. doubleheader the next day. And so naturally the game went 15 innings. So we started at like eight or eight 30. The game went 15 innings and we didn't get out of the ballpark till 1230 at night. And all of us in the bullpen were just, we're like, can we just leave? Like if, would they even notice if we just like, if I just hop this fence and just like sneak off to the hotel. And really I was hoping that someone would be like, Hey, blew it. Like you're starting tomorrow. Just go home, man. Like, get some sleep because we need you to pitch well. No, never came. So I had to pitch the 11 a.m. game the next day. We go 15 innings. We pull out a win. We won 3-2, to two, which is miraculous. And then I had to pitch the next day. So I just remember getting to the ballpark at, like, 9.30, and it was pretty much all show and goes from this point on. But I just could not wake myself up. You know, I had been, like, if you've ever seen Pulp Fiction where Butch, uh, Bruce Willis's character, is – you know, he's, he's sitting in the, uh, in the tunnel on the trainer's table and he's about ready to go into, you know, go up to the, the main event and fight. And he starts going, moo, moo. And he like punches himself on the face a little bit and he's walking down the tunnel, you know, getting himself up or himself psyched up, you know, uttering these guttural sounds. I was doing, I was doing all that. I was doing my best butch impression, trying to get going. You know, I had a ton of caffeine in me. I was just like, and my body just kept slumping. My, I was just, all right, all right, let's throw this ball as hard as you can, Dan. Come on, like, let's, let's get it. Let's, you know, let's, we're ready to go. Like, and just no. My body was just like, no. Like, nah, <laughs> not throwing a ball hard today. And every with every breath, I just, my body just slumped. Like, my body just needed sleep. It needed rest. It did not need to be on that field in the Hawaii sun at 11 a.m. 
it needed just to be in bed. And I just could not summon it. And it was just, it was very disconcerting and very, I mean, it just made it worse that I just couldn't psych myself up. There was nothing artificial um, was going to do it. But I had to go there and pitch anyway. So, fortunately, Maui was not a great team. So I go out there, and I just sort of, like, zombied it through the first three innings. And then I started to, war- I started to like, wake up a little bit. And I started to, like, get hit my stride and started to throw a little harder. And I just, like, felt my body wake up. I guess enough adrenaline had been pumping through my veins where some some cells in my body started to recognize myself as a living being. Um, and I started to pitch well. And then, like, in the fourth, fifth inning, I, like, hit my stride. And I, like, I remember had a, I had a good inning where I, I struck a couple guys out. And I was like, all right, let's 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 do this. And I was ready to go back out from the next inning. And Tim Johnson, our, our manager, wasn't managing that day. He had some family issue, he said. Um, so he was stuck at the hotel. But so Pete, uh, our hitting coach, was our um, – our interim manager that day, and he he greets me as I'm I'm excited to go back out for my next inning, coming in into the dugout, and he goes, "Hey, blue, that's it." I'm like, and I was just stunned. I go, "What?" I'm, and he goes, "Yeah, you're done." And I was like, "Ooh, I just screwed up." So you never back talk the manager, you never back talk any of your coaches, and I thought I. There's when he said that I just was like so focused on going back out and so excited that I'd finally like gotten it that day and I just was like so like in my own zone that when he said like that I was done I just like didn't I was like wait are you I thought genuinely like thought he was joking and when I like expressed that to him it was just I just screwed up um, so I sat down in the dugout and one of my teammates was like dude you can't you couldn't have said that like you you got to go apologize to him like you can't do that. Like I know, I know. So I I went up and I apologized to to Pete, and he said, "No, I I understand. Like I know, like obviously I played too. It's like I, we're all competitive. I know you just wanted to go back out. Like it's okay. Like don't don't worry about it." Um, so I I apologized as as much as I could, and he accepted, and um, I thought I was all okay. But we uh so we won that game. We won the next game in that doubleheader. So we were three and zero in these first three miserable games, and we uh we go back to the hotel that night and. Um, I'm just like sitting in one of the guys' rooms as guys are playing cards. I'm just kind of watching and TJ walks in, um, Tim Johnson, TJ. And he was, Hey there blue. Um, actually he called me red ass. That was my, my nickname. Um, and, and the reason I would, he called me that was because we pitchers had a pool. So the starting pitchers, it was nationally rules for some reason, uh, on this crazy debacle of a team. I don't know why the league decided to play National League rules. It just defies all logic. I mean, almost no minor league teams do that unless they're a National League team and you're a double-A or higher. But either way, I got the hit. So all the starting pitchers, we even kind of made a pool. So it was $10 a head per base for the first pitcher to get each hit. So of all five starting pitchers, we all put in 10 bucks for the first single. So if you got the first single out of the starting pitchers, you won the $50 pool. First double, $50 times two. First triple, you get 150 bucks first home run you'd get $40 from each pitcher so in my first at bat it was in game four in Maui no one had gotten a hit yet no pitcher had gotten a hit um first pitch I saw I was swinging a 34 32 like mahogany finished uh t141 and just the first pitch I I saw kid was thrown 88 to 90 um I just instinctively swung hit a one hopper back of the pitcher hit off his leg and I legged it out with my awkward kind of uh, gallop to first base. 
and I got a hit. So it was my I was the first pitcher to get a single, and I was all smiles, and uh, everyone kind of gave me a little ovation from the dugout. And um, I probably like as soon as I started like smiling and guys were yelling at me, I was like, oh crap, I probably gotta I probably gotta can this because maybe the pitcher's gonna hit me next time. Um, so I got my next at bat, and I was told to bunt which I knew it was coming. You know, if I got up in a situation where uh, I was less than two outs and we had a guy on, like, very high probability they are just going to have me bunt to move him over. Like, I'm not, none of us are good hitters. Like, that's just the, the best decision. So um, I was like, oh, crap, I like, kind of showed that pitcher up last time. I was, like, real excited about my single. And so I was pretty nervous that he was going to throw at me. And so I, like, sheepishly square around the bunt. And lo and behold, who knows if he, like, actually threw up at me or not. But, like, up near my face, and I hadn't seen more than, you know, I hadn't swung a bat. I hadn't been in a competitive game since high school. You know, and I was seeing 75 miles per hour most days in high school. So here comes, like, 89 right up on my face. I would would no part of that. So, I mean, that ball moves quick. And uh, I, like, get out of there, and I stare him down. So, like, I just, like was ready for him to throw at me and then he pretty much threw at me and then when he threw at me I just got real pissed about it and I stared him down I like kind of like put my bat like I didn't drop the bat but I stared him down I like put the bat on the ground and uh there's like this mini stupid stare down between me idiot pitcher A and him maybe mad pitcher B I didn't know if he was mad or not I don't know if he meant to do that but he threw it up and in I mean when you when a guy bunts throwing it up and in is a good way for them to not bunt it. Um, so I, like, stared him down, and the bench just loved it. They just, like, roared, and um, TJ and Pete, they loved it. They're like, oh, look, it blew it. He's so pissed. He thinks the other pitcher's throwing at him. What a red ass, which I know what that was. But I'm so I'm, like, trying to get clarity as I'm coming back in the dugout after I successfully got my, my sack bunt down. And so they're calling me red ass, and I'm like, TJ, I don't know what that means. Like, I think I know what that means, given the context, but... What does that mean? He's like, oh, George, George Brett. Think about George Brett. George Brett, classic red ass. I'm like, okay. He's like, yeah, it's just like a guy who gets like really mad over <laughs> over little stuff. I'm like, okay. So that was my nickname um, for the rest of the year. So here I was sitting in the hotel room um, after, you know, showing up Pete when he was trying to take me out of the game. And TJ goes, so I uh, heard you. Heard you mouthed off the pee today. And I said, yeah, I, I and I apologize. I, I just, you know, I got caught up in the moment. I didn't mean to, and I, I know I shouldn't have done that. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, TJ, like I, I screwed up. And he goes, yep, darn right you did. If you'd done that to me, you had never played another game. Like, like that would have been it for you. Last game you ever played. That would have been it. Last one blew it. I'm like, like all, right, all right. I'm like, I didn't really know what he meant by that. Like, did he have some sort of power? Was he going to call the other, all the other managers and tell them that this blue kid was a troublemaker and that that was it? I don't know. Maybe he had that weird card in his pocket. But um, I nodded, and I, I said that I understood, and that would never happen again. And um, he's like, yeah, I know. Well, and he patted me on the shoulder and said, oh, I love you, red ass. I'll see, I'll see you later. <laughs> Sorry. So after that, I was just so done. I just All I just wanted to get was some sleep. But we were in the middle of this team crisis because we weren't getting paid. So we figured out early that, A, the meal money was not coming. We were consistently getting maybe half our meal money. 
um, which again became a, a real big problem with all this travel. Like you're spending money on fast food and all these meals on the road. Like the money that you normally would get just doesn't go anywhere near as far. And then on top of that, paychecks are bouncing. So I remember our first paycheck we got in uh, in Yuma. So our first uh, payday, you know, because we didn't get paid after just being on the team for two months. Obviously, you don't get paid in spring training. That's It's crazy that you don't get paid in spring training because you're there. You can't do anything else. Like, you should get paid for spring training. But minor league baseball has, like, the worst labor laws. They treat the guys like crap. It's, it's really sad. But um, you don't expect to get paid in spring training, and you don't. But your pay starts on the first day of the season. So our first day of the season was a travel day. We still get paid for it. And we got paid for the next seven days, but they pay you on the first and the fifteenth of the month. So I, I can't remember when the season started, but basically only like ten days had to go by before our first pay period hit. Where you know the, maybe we started the season on May fifth, and uh, you know when May fifteenth rolls around, we get a ten day paycheck. So we're in Yuma and we get paychecks, and like I said, there was Bank of America right next to the hotel, and I had Bank of America, so I get my paycheck and I just walk on over and doop a doop a doop, you know, put in the handy little Bank of America check deposit ATMs, which were glorious, and uh, says deposit accepted. I'm like, great. You know, my little $850 a month paycheck, it was probably like a $350 check, got sucked in and, you know, cashed. Great. All's well. Well, I come to find out that probably a third of the team, when they did the same thing, didn't cash. Check bounced. So a bunch of guys went to Walmart, some guys went to banks, you know, just various places to either get cash for their check or to deposit or whatever. But about a third of the guys' checks bounced, and they were pissed. And rightfully so, because this was, again, this was an older league. A bunch of guys had wives. A couple guys had kids. Everyone has bills back home. You know, some guys are stupider with money than others. Um, but everyone's got, I mean, you need money to live. So paychecks are bouncing. Tempers are running high. So here we were, you know, a week or two later. And guys' second paychecks were bouncing. And it really just came down to, like, if they cut $20,000 worth of payroll checks, for example, maybe there was, like, $11,000 in the bank. So the first $11,000 worth of checks that got ran through the bank got cashed. So I was always one of the first ones there. Plus, I had, like, my paychecks were, like, $0. So it was pretty easy for them to cash. But other guys who were making a lot more than me, um, who maybe had a comma on their paycheck, which is, like, slang for like oh we got four digits like get that comma you know that thousand dollar paycheck um you know maybe there wasn't enough money insufficient funds by the time they get there so that became a a common problem where by time we were like three weeks deep like there was already talk of mutiny because we were all short on meal money right across the board and a lot of guys were short on paychecks i wasn't one of them i got all my paychecks but and i was real good with money i lived very frugally so it wasn't really a big deal and i didn't really drink so I wasn't out there spending 20, 30 bucks a night on, on booze, but, um, you know, it was, it was an issue. So even from the get go, Pete, um, and this guy, Pete, Pete LeCock, he played for the Cubs back in, I think the the seventies or the eighties. Um, just one of like the most gracious guys I've ever met. He was a, he was our hitting coach and, and Tim Johnson, our our manager was a real hands-off kind of guy. So he was just, and a lot of like the big league managers were like that, where they write the lineup they stand there in front of the dugout, and everyone gets better because they're they're trying to live up to his standard, but they don't do a whole lot of managing, and they don't do a whole lot of organization either. Obviously, there's a ton of behind-the-scenes stuff that we don't see as players, but, I mean, in general, just kind of like low-energy guys that 
They're not interacting a ton. They're not doing tons of things. It's not like amateur baseball where they're actively coaching all of us. They're just managing the team. Like, that's their job. But um, but Pete, as our, our hitting and bench coach, he was the glue. He was the mortar that kept everyone together. So he handed out plane tickets. He handed out meal money. He handed out paychecks. He gave guys itineraries. He pretty much just, like, kept all the ducks in a row. Usually the trainer kind of does that job, but... Our trainer was a was a Korean guy who didn't speak English super well. He was a really good trainer. He's really good at his job, but he just wasn't great at communicating because I, I don't know that he'd been in the United States that long. He just he could communicate well enough to talk to us, but not well enough to hold like a really deep conversation. So he certainly wasn't the guy um, to do all the communicating between players in the front office. So it just came down to Pete because the only guys we traveled with were TJ Pete, um, our player coach Chris, who's our pitching coach and a pitcher. Um, this uh, Our radio broadcaster, a guy named Kamar Zaman, uh, our trainer, which I cannot remember his name at this moment, and I think that might have been it. So of all the people to be the liaison between the front office, which was you know worlds away, uh, it was Pete. So when meal money was short, he would pull out this huge wad of like this like drug dealer wad of cash from his pocket, and he'd be like, hey, you know, the team wired me 1500 bucks for meal money, so that means it's $72 for each guy. Um, plus, I got this other role, like, if you need money, like, I understand, um, I'll help you. So just, if you need money, just come up to me, and I'll, you know, I'll give you what you need to get through to the ne- next paycheck or whatever. So throughout all this, he was giving out the meal money. He was doing his best to be the liaison between the front office and some very angry players. And then he was also just giving a lot of his own money to us, um, to the guys that needed it. So, you know, and as it turned out, later he became the victim of all this because the front office actually accused him of stealing money. And as far as I know, Pete was the nicest guy. He was, again, the glue that held us together, and he was giving us money out of his own pocket. So um, their claims of embezzlement to me were just ridiculous because, you know, we saw um, just the best of this man as he just kind of helped everyone get through what was a really tough situation. So I just remember here we were, we were in, uh, we were in Maui for the second time. We had a second trip there for, it was like a four day trip. And I was, I was over the island at that point. I didn't want any lobsters. I didn't want any, any, any sand, any, any waves. I just wanted to sleep. That's all I wanted. But I also wanted my paycheck and I also wanted some meal money cause I wanted to eat. And we were sitting in the Maui hotel room talking about mutiny. We we're like, do we refuse to play? Like some guys wrote two paychecks at this point. We're like, how do we get our money? Like we need our paychecks. We need to make a stand. We need meal money. Like what do we do? And uh, and Pete kind of quashed this rumor. So we were all like we had player only meetings. Like it was just and we didn't have the best, the smartest older guys leading us. I mean we had some really smart guys on the team, but the couple that took leadership role here were just kind of like, man, I, I don't know if you guys are the ones to really lead us through this. But we all sat there and we kind of listened and. We we weighed our options and really our options were zero. Like we had no leverage as players. We all had these you know like thousand ish dollar a month contracts. There's no union. Um, they don't need us. They could just get rid of us at any moment and just get new players because people want our jobs every day. So we decided that yeah we might need to refuse to play to like get paid, and make a stand, blah blah blah. So we like come to TJ and Pete with this, and uh, TJ speaks first and he's like you idiots he didn't say idiots he said much dirtier word but he's like you guys think this is gonna this is how this is gonna work that you guys have any power that you guys are gonna make this better 
by refusing to play. And he's like, hogwash. This is gonna, this is not going to end well. They will clean house. They will get rid of all of you. I love you guys, and I go to battle with you, but this is not going to work, and this is not the way to do this. Play the game. Take the field. When we get back home to Lake County, we'll figure it out. The guys did not like that answer because they wanted to get paid, you know, and we wanted to feel respected and, and treated the right way, which we were not. Um, we were getting lied to repeatedly. And then so after TJ gave his speech and kind of walked off, Pete kind of consoled us, and he was like, look, you know, TJ's right, unfortunately. Um, but, look, just just stick with us a little longer until we get back to Lake County. And uh, when we get home, they said there's going to be revenue from ticket sales and all this stuff, and they'll be able to pay all all their dues to us. And and if they don't, like, I'll be right behind you guys. I'll do whatever you want. You know, if you want to refuse to play, we'll refuse to play, and I'll be, I'll be right behind you guys. So we said, okay, like, we'll do it for you. So we only had, like, one road trip left. You know, we were at, like, week six out of week seven. So we finish it up, we go to Chico, California, and then I, I think we go back from Chico, and we fly into Lake County, and, and this is where it got even more weird. So we were scheduled for a five-day homestand, and I was going to pitch the fourth game. So I think we go 3-0 and in the first three, and I remember I pitched my last game, and I pitched one of my best games of the year. I, I threw a complete game. I beat the, the Yuma Scorpions team, which I already pitched against at least twice, which included Jose Canseco and uh, Joey Gathright and uh, Willie Ibar, who are all f- uh, former big leaguers, uh, Ozzy Ozzy Canseco as well. Um, so I threw a complete game. I think he had one unearned run or one earned run. I had like seven or eight strikeouts, and Dominican Winter League scout was there, and I hit 93 in the ninth inning, and just like everything was great. Like it was really cool. We had like 3,500 fans there, and we were playing in this ramshackle ballpark. Um, so what we came home to was basically a lie. It was like a high school quality baseball field. Um, with like dying grass, no irrigation, all these temporary bleachers, but the fans still were like so excited to see us. We were 20, 20 and 10 on the road and, uh, we are just a great team and our, you know, their hometown heroes had come back finally. So they, they came out and supported us and we did well, but we still weren't getting paid. We gave them our demands. They said, yeah, you'll get paid by this day. That day came and went and that was like the third day. So after my game, we were like, look, that was it. This this was the day and it didn't happen. So um, TJ came in. We were in this uh, we were in this portable classroom was our clubhouse. So it was like a small portable classroom with these tiny like slivers of metal gray lockers. Not enough for everybody. Um, I actually taped my own locker on the wall. I made this like three dimensional tape locker and I taped hangers to it. So I had my own locker, but uh, it was pretty sweet. But you know we were sitting there. And we're like. This has got to be it. And TJ says, look, guys, I love you. And I, this is like the best gritty uh, dirtbag bunch of ball players I've been around. I'm really proud of you guys. And this has been such a good ride. But I got to I got to make a stand for myself and for you guys. And I got to quit. So this was my last game. So I'm done. Pete's going to be your manager tomorrow. And then he's going to and then he's going to quit, too. So P, uh, TJ resigns and Pete says, well, what do you guys want to do? And we said, well. He said, you know, I told you I'd support you, so here it is. And we said, well, we don't want to play for this, this guy, this owner. Um, so I think we uh, we we kind of everyone kind of threw around ideas, and we said, well, what if the pitchers pitch or the pitchers hit, and the position players pitch? And he said, I I don't care. Like 
is that what you guys want to do? We said, he's like, well, you know, you guys, you need to play. That was one of the things he, he pushed. He's like, you, you can't refuse to play now because if you do that, the owner of the league is going to, the commissioner is going to come down on you. He's going to hold you to your contracts. He's going to put you on the suspended list or the restricted list, and no one's going to get to leave. He's like, so don't jeopardize your ability to get away from here. Um, just fulfill your thing, and we'd all petition to become free agents because we weren't paid in full. He's like, just let it play out, but you should take the field. So we said, okay, position players will pitch, pitchers will hit. So here we are. Um, I finished my last start, and our number five starter wasn't going to make his and said he was <laughs> going to be in the lineup. So when Jose Canseco heard this, he came into our locker room, and he said, hey, if you guys are going to do this, like we'll do it too. So I'm gonna I'm gonna be the starting pitcher, and I'm gonna throw. He he's like an accomplished knuckleballer, I guess, in his own little world. But um, so when I had actually pitched against Jose the previous day, I pitched against him a bunch in a couple of different um, games against Yuma. But um, it was noteworthy because I I drilled him with a pitch the previous outing in my complete game. So Jose stood so close to the plate that it was just ridiculous. Um, he would scrape out the whole batter's box. He would put his his right foot. He was a right-handed hitter. He would put his right foot, like, literally behind the point of the plate. And he just took away the entire plate, essentially. He just wanted you to be afraid of him, afraid of hitting him. He wore this huge arm guard so that you would throw him away, and then he would just yank it into oblivion. And I said, well, screw that noise. I'm going to pitch inside to you uh, exclusively, basically, until I get to two strikes and I'm going to throw you a curveball. So that's what I did. So for like eight at-bats in two previous games, two or three previous games against him, he saw nothing but inside fastballs, like real tight, and then a couple, you know, a couple breaking balls here and there. And uh, and this game was no exception. So I wasn't going to let him, I was gonna, not going to play into his, his fear-mongering and, and throw him on the outside corner, which to him was basically like the inner half of the plate. So I was just pounding him in, pounding him in, pounding him in, and then finally, like one just, which was going to happen sooner or later, one just got away. And I drilled him up and in, and it just, like, was coming for his face. And he did that, like, whole, like, oh, man, I see it coming for me, you know, kind of drops the bat, raises his elbow up to protect himself, and it crushed him on the back of the elbow. Of course, it hit him right on the elbow guard, but um, it was so high up and in that he, as he went to protect himself, he lost his footing and, like, fell to the ground. And then from the ground, he, like, really milked it. So he just, like, laid there, and then he, like, looked up at me. And I'm like, dude, like, you know I wasn't trying to hit you. And I'm like, dude, I know you're not going to charge me, but I'm also kind of scared. So um, he finally just, like, dusted himself off and walked to first base, like, slower than he needed to. And after the game, the reporters asked me about it. They're like, what was it like to hit Jose Canseco? I'm like, I mean, it got him on the arm guard. <laughs> I mean, it didn't hurt him. And he knew. Like, he played, what, 10 years, 15 years in the major leagues? He was the MVP. Um, he knew that I was pitching him inside. He's he'd gotten all inside fastballs from me in prior at bats. He's not stupid. He knew he knows I wasn't trying to hit him, and uh, you know it's just baseball. Like he knows, he knows what he was doing. So Jose comes into our locker room and he's like, "Hey, like I'm I'm with you guys. Let's 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 do it." So the next night, we had like four thousand fans come to watch me hit like sixth in the lineup. Our shortstop start on the mound, like our number three starter, a lefty, was playing left field. Like it was just a farce. But I don't think even half the fans knew it because when I came up to bat, 
I was trying to a I was trying to take Jose deep. I mean, that's the only thing I wanted to do. I didn't want to hit a single. Like who hits singles? That's stupid. Um, I was trying to impress the ladies in the stands. So Jose was throwing me knuckleballs, and they honestly they were like filthy. But he fell behind two and zero, and I've been watching the game, so I knew that when he fell behind, he came up with a fastball after it. So you know his fastball was probably seventy five miles per hour. But after seeing these little floating knuckleballs, they looked like a hundred. So. He falls behind 2-0, and and I'm, like, licking my chops. I'm like, here it is. I'm going to hit a home run off Jose Canseco. And then I'm just going to bat flip, and then maybe just, uh, maybe that'll be it. Maybe I'll retire. And he just jammed me so bad because it was, like, 75 miles an hour off of, of like, a 55-mile-per-hour floating knuckleball. And I was so pissed as my little chopper grounded to third base. I just jogged down to first base. I'm like, I'm not running this out. Like, I'm a pitcher. This is this is moronic. You think I'm here to beat out ground balls? No. I tried to hit home run. I failed. I'm jogging. So as I'm jogging, I get booed by the fans. And I'm like, do you guys do you guys know that I'm a pitcher? Because I'm definitely a pitcher. I pitched yesterday, um, and I'm not running these ground balls out. So stop booing me. And then the next at bat is the exact same script. He fell behind two and zero again. Throws me a fastball again. I tried to get ready again, but I failed to remind myself that I stunk at hitting, and I ground out the short again. So, yet again, angry at myself, I jogged, and I got booed. So, that was going to how my night went. I think my third at bat, I hit a ground ball to, sh- to second. Um, and I just, you know, 0 for 3, I sucked. But uh, that was my night against Jose Canseco, and I think we ended up losing. I think one of the Yuma pitchers hit a home run, which I was super jealous about. And uh, And after that, that was it. So, we, like hugged it out in our little trailer after the game, our little uh, portable classroom. And, you know, guys have been making calls, myself included, trying to figure out, like, how do we get off this sinking ship? Like, we got to get out of Lake County. And the owner was this maniacal guy who was scolding us. I mean, like, after they got wind that we were doing what we were doing in this fifth game, he left this angry note on our door. He's like, you guys are, you're not professionals. You're making a joke of the game, blah, 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 blah. Like, dude, you've been lying to us this whole time not paying us, just at the very least, let's just let it go. You know, we uphold, we upheld our part of the bargain the whole way. We didn't, we didn't mutiny. We took the field. We won, you know, again, we were 20 and 10. We put up a good product. We played hard. We didn't complain about it. I mean, it it was, we did everything we could. And this guy was trying to make us look like the bad guy. It was just, it's this ridiculous situation, but and our uh, our radio broadcaster quit on the air after I think after that game he was he had this whole speech that was on YouTube about how he he didn't need this job and um, about how he was just so disappointed about the way everything went and how the players were treated and how he was treated and just all of it um, he was a good dude so it uh it just unraveled and in all of our panic we were all making calls I called the commissioner twice uh, actually I think it was like the assistant commissioner but. You know, it's just me, like this peon, this just random guy in the league talking to the, the deputy commissioner and trying to be respectful and, and ask him, like, look, I don't want to be stuck here. Can you help me? Um, and so he, like, gave us advice on how to petition so that we could elect for free agency because if you didn't get paid, you could petition to become a free agent to get out of your contract because, again, your contract wasn't being fulfilled to you. Um, so everyone did that. And then finally... Um, you know, Lake County tried to hold us there because they didn't want to lose their whole good team. But ultimately, they, they let us go, and um, I elected free agency. I signed with Fargo, and, uh, you know, and I, I kind of 
slunk off into the night up to uh to meet the team but you know it was just this crazy saga and uh the story i mean to this day i think this is the first time it's really like been told in its entirety um and like i said i've been writing out the story in in my book and it's uh it's one of the letters in my book dear baseball gods but you know it, it's it's just that this crazy thing that i was a part of and you know and i guess to summarize the kevin costner thing was a really big uh a really big element of it. So the Lake County fielders, they were advertised as Kevin Costner's team. Like he backed them, but really what it's, what it kind of came out of the wash as was that he just like sort of lent them his name. Um, and that he didn't have any real ownership stake in it. I don't know if that's true or not, but we were kind of like trying to find out if we could like, we were trying to contact Mr. Costner during the season. Like, no, he would never, he would never stand for this. Like the field of dreams, Kevin Costner would never stand for this. Um, that failed obviously, but, uh, you know, we felt like he should know what his name was endorsing because it was this, this terrible product and we deserved better. Like we were playing good baseball. We were playing good baseball for Kevin Costner. Like the guys in the cornfield, like they would have, they would have loved us. We were gritty. We were corn cornfield guys. But, um, so Kevin Costner's image was like tied to this team. And so that was the reason when our team folded, it made national news. Like we were in ESPN. Um, or on ESPN, and they talked about how, like, oh, Kevin Costner's team has folded from, like, financial reasons and blah, 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 blah. And, like, the our, our radio broadcaster's speech about him quitting, like, that was, like, as part of, like, the little tiny segment on ESPN. And um, it was all over, like, the Chicago Sun Tribune and all these local papers. And um, it was just, like, a big deal because it was, it was a big deal to this community. They really wanted baseball there, and they were trying to do it the right way, but they picked the wrong guy to do it. And uh, this owner was just incredibly shady. He had run a, a previous team into the ground um, and just became this whole debacle. But um, that was kind of how it unraveled. And the last little piece of it was that, you know, I was in, in my frantic um, paddling trying to get off this sinking ship. I I called around. I called normal. Um, I said, hey, like, can I come back there? Um, I know you guys trade me away, but this team's collapsing. Can I can I come back? And they're like, yeah, sure. We'd love to have you back. So I found a place to play, but then I didn't want to go back there. Cause again, I was still too old. Like I hadn't gotten any younger. And uh, so I called one of my friends and one of my previous coaches and he had played for Fargo a couple years and he called them and asked if they needed a player and everyone, all the teams had like heard about us and they were like eager to grab a piece of this winning team that was folding. And they're like, yeah, we're down, we're down a starter. We were down to four guys in our rotation. So we actually need a starter. So I, talked to them and they were excited to have me and uh so I signed with with Fargo and then the night I I kind of finally inked the contract they said all right well I was in Chicago and I I had this girl with me she she her and I had met in Spain um when I was visiting my sister who had studied abroad she was a friend of my 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 sister Annie and uh and we had met and we had been like kind of like pen pals from from long distance and she was coming back into into the states and decided to fly directly to Chicago to, to meet me there. So she was with me in Chicago when these last four games unfolded. And then suddenly, like, this kind of, like, little mini vacation we had planned for ourselves got completely destroyed. I was, like, the most stressed I'd been in years. And after Fargo signed me, I had to just get in my car, drive through the night to meet the team in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, so that I could make my start the day after I arrived. Um but it just threw this whole monkey wrench into all of it that a, that she was with me and um, just the whole thing went down the way it did. Like it just was a really messy thing for, for everybody. Um, 
and then the last little thing about it was that it was it was just really strange. So once I had told Normal that I was going to go back for, and play for them, you know, I, I cared about Brooks Carey. He was a, a good pitching coach to me, and, and Hal was a good manager, and I always believed in being honest with people. So I had called them and told them that I was coming back. And the next day, I had kind of brokered the deal with Fargo, and I really wanted to go there because they were a good team. They were in a higher league, so it was like a good upgrade for me. And so I, I felt bad going back on my words. So at the very least, I wanted to just call Brooks and tell him, like, hey, I know I told you this, um, but I'm actually going to do this instead. So I remember standing in my hotel overlooking Rush Street in Chicago, and I, I called Brooks, and he picks up, and I was like, hey, you know, I, I know I told you I was going to come back, but I just wanted to, to tell you, you know, kind of face-to-face that um, I got another offer and it's in Fargo, and I, I want to take that because it's an older league, and I think it's better for my career, and um, I hope you understand. I just wanted to make sure I told you rather than just, uh, you know, not calling you back or, or just signing this other contract behind your back. And he said, well, it's actually interesting, um, and you actually might not be going anywhere because I've been offered the manager job for Lake County. So he was the pitching coach there, and I guess whoever was um, – procuring players and, and managers for Lake County had found Brooks and um, they'd offered them a job and spun him a web of lies that said like everything was good, that all the problems were fixed and everything was on the up and up and all the, all the things that he'd heard were just a miscommunication and it was all fine. I was like, Brooks, it is not fine. Here's how the way things actually went. Here th- here's how things actually are. Here's how that ballpark is. And you you can't take this job. Like you have a good job there. Like you need to stay there, because if you take this one, it's going to ruin your summer. Like we're all trying to flee from this place, and uh, we're absconding as fast as we can, and you don't want to go back into that burning building. And he said, "Well, that's you know that's not the version I heard." I said, "Well, I was there. Like I, I know what happened." And he said, "He kind of just took a minute to digest it, and then finally said, you know what?'" okay, like, I believe you, I'm, I'm not going to take the job. And he, uh, and it was a, a life lesson for me because he just said, you know, if you hadn't been a man and, and called me and told me that even though it wasn't easy to tell me that, you know, what I didn't want to hear, like, I wanted you to come back here, but um, you told, you called me to tell me that you're going somewhere else and that you're going back on your word. And um, if you hadn't done that, I'd be on my way to Lake County to be a manager of a team that I didn't want to manage. So, um it was weird the way all that worked out, and he kind of just said, hey, if you ever need a favor, I'm always here. Like, I owe you one. And I hung up. We got in our car, drove to Sioux Falls, and as it turned out, a couple years later, I did need a favor. You know, I blew my elbow out the next season and um, with Brooks as my pitching coach, and I needed favors throughout throughout the rest of my career, just trying to get back in there and stay in the game. So, you know, it was a, it was a lesson at the end of all of it, just trying to, to treat people right and, and – be upfront and honest with people. So, um, and that was really just the, the crux of the whole Lake County thing was that we were just being lied to the whole time and we played our hearts out, but we weren't respected by the front office. Um, despite, you know, again, putting our, our heart and soul into, into everything. I mean, we were a good team. We were a gritty bunch of players and, um, it was a tough situation we were put into and we, we really rose to the occasion. So, you know, and as we kind of doubled back, I, that none of these stories and, and this big Lake County experience, it would have never happened if I hadn't just rolled the dice and said, you know what, what I got is good enough. And I'm going to go out there and I'm going to fight with it. So 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that I made the choices I did and, and got to be a part of this, uh, this Titanic of independent baseball. And, you know, it was one of my fondest memories, despite how hard it was and how tired I was and how difficult it was being deceived for so long. And so what I, you know, got out of it the other day was a story that I'll tell my grandkids, you know, and that was the only thing I'll take away from it, but it's kind of a big one, you know. So what a story, the Lake County Fielders, you heard it here first on Dear Baseball Gods.